time to talk a little bit about trade. And if you think back just a few days, it wasn't that long ago, uh, we were celebrating. Uh, there was uh, reason to celebrate because there was a deal on steel and aluminum tariffs and that was reached uh, between uh, Canada, U.S. and Mexico, something uh, that uh, had been dragging on uh, for about a year and causing, well, causing some hardship in some areas. But when we look closer at the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, the USMCA, uh, the agreement that replaces the North American Free Trade Agreement, so where do we stand as far as benefits for Canada and uh, other issues perhaps with the agreement? Well, let's bring in Richard Owens, a Monk Senior Fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Good morning. Uh, how important is it to, as far as this deal and Canada's uh, involvement and role in uh, the USMCA? Oh, it's absolutely critical. You know, North America is a natural trading bloc, uh, and Canada and the United States in particular. So um, in many areas of the country, we trade much more naturally with the United States than we do with our own other provinces. So finalizing rules, having an agreement in place uh, for tariffs, uh, admitted quantities of goods, market share, intellectual property, these are absolutely critical. Uh, I mentioned uh, steel and aluminum off the top because that's been in the news most recently. Uh, You've put out a report, a study that also looks at what you just mentioned, uh, intellectual property. Uh, Can you walk us through kind of where that fits into the agreement and why that's uh, an important one as well? Sure. Um, The intellectual property chapter, chapter 20, is one of the more significant chapters of the agreement. In fact, it um, sets up an important set of rules by which each side recognizes the value of the other's intellectual property. Now, the United States ships a little more into this country in terms of patent-protected goods than uh, we ship out. But in terms of copyright uh, goods and services, We're about even. Actually, Canada does a little bit better. Um, But the volumes are large and they're growing. Canada Canada is turning from uh, a hewer of wood and drawer of water into a much more innovation-centered economy. Uh, And without these rules that um, gain its recognition for intellectual property, gain the protection that intellectual property providers need, we uh, we would be worse off. Uh, and so if I'm correct, the chain, one of the changes in this agreement has to do with copyright protection as well, and that increases the life of copyright? Yeah, that's a big one. Um, in Canada, we currently have uh, a life plus 50 years protection from the death of the author. Um, this agreement will take it to life plus 70, so it's 20 more years. This is, uh, for all kinds of reasons, a great boon. It will um, spur greater production of uh, copyright-protected goods and cultural goods. But in particular, you know, um, most of the rest of the world recognizes life plus 70 years, but Canadian authors, for instance, in Europe, don't get that protection because we don't offer it to European authors. So it's a big win around the world just by acceding to this new term. And so does that, does uh, music and such uh, and movies and that fall under that as well, or is that a different uh, area? It all falls uh, in, into that uh, uh, under copyright law as well. That's right. Yes. Yeah. 
And do, so do you think it'll, it'll make a difference then? Because you touch on this in the report as well when it comes to, mm-hmm. to piracy of music and movies and, and content. Will that, will that have an impact on that, do you think? No, uh, I wish I could say it did. I think uh, the agreement is deficient in anti-piracy measures. I think uh, Canada got away with a bit of a coup in protecting its very, very weak regime um, against piracy. And I wish, frankly, that uh, the negotiators had been able to accomplish accomplish more. Piracy, it, it can't be overestimated as a problem. The amount of uh, downloaded pirated signals, streamed music and movies, uh, uh, peer-to-peer file sharing. These uh, are making such depredations on our cultural industries that um, we're really losing out in terms of their ability to produce new products. It's it's interesting you mentioned that because it is something that it seemed like for a while there it was very top of mind and we were talking about it a lot and even uh, you know putting mm-hmm. uh, talking saying to people you will you'll get caught if you do this it's wrong to do this it seems like it's kind of fallen off the radar. You know um, you're absolutely right and I think that's a sad thing. The efforts to continue to combat piracy are still afoot. Uh, we just recently had the Fair Play Initiative, which um, copyright goods producers put forward about a year ago uh, to actually take piracy websites off uh, off of Canadian access so they would no longer be accessible through the Internet, would have been a terrific thing. Instead, I think what's happened is that the ability to download stuff for free and get around rules has become normalized uh, in this country. Um, we are not the highest, but we're pretty high in terms of our our ranking of amount of pirated content. Um, We need stronger rules to prevent that. And we need a recognition in society that uh, people who write books and poems and make movies and music are really important contributors who deserve a living out of their uh, out of their efforts. And I think anybody in that industry would agree wholeheartedly with that, for sure. Um, you also touch on or you talk about data protection when it comes to, to biologic drugs. Mm. Can you, what, is, what is the protection that's offered, or do we have more protection in, in this agreement? Yes, we do have more protection in this agreement. This is a, uh, a rather um, arcane subject, I guess, but... Um, as, uh, as as you probably know, drugs are protected by two kinds of intellectual property protection. One of them is patents. So a new drug will be patented and protected for 20 years from the date of the patent filing. But in addition to that, drugs have to gain um, market approval before they can go on sale. And in order to do that, they have to submit Um, clinical trials and other information about their safety and efficacy uh, to the regulator. Well, when a follow-on generic or a biosimilar, as the biologic equivalent is called, comes along, it gets to rely on that data to say, you know what, we're sort of the same compound. We should be able to say the clinical trials that prove the originator drug safe also prove we're safe. Um, But the new rules under... Uh, the USNCA will say you can't do that for 10 years. Canada currently allows eight years of data exclusivity before a generic or biosimilar can come along and um, 
and and claim to uh, claim access to the market based on its competitors' efforts and clinical trials. So we now have um, biosimilars or biologics protected for two more years. Is that going to be a big difference? For a host of reasons, probably not, one of which is that this um, change doesn't need to be implemented for another five years. But also, um, you know, new biologic drugs, they're made through very complicated processes. They are very expensive and they're very hard to duplicate. So whereas we're accustomed to, you know, 80 or 90 percent savings when the generic version of acetaminophen comes out or thyroxin or insulin or any of these more common drugs, um, with biosimilars, we're going to be looking, I think, at much less in the way of savings uh, and investment that requires a longer period of protection in order for it to pay off. So I think it's a win for the industry at relatively low cost for consumers. Uh, because I guess the argument being from the the industry is we are spending a lot of money to develop these drugs. So why would we do that if then they can be copied and, and sold at a much uh, in a generic form at a quicker or faster? Uh, whereas with the consumer have the the argument though that uh, consumers want access to more affordable or less expensive drugs. Absolutely, sure. That's that's the trade off. But you know, um, it's hard to know exactly where the trade off lies and the. The big thing we have to recognize is that for consumers to get access to drugs at whatever it is, 10 or 20 percent off, if uh, once the drug comes out of protection, for it to get access to those, for the consumer to get access to those drugs, they got to be there in the first place. And without adequate protection for the research and development that drug companies are pouring into creating these new drugs, um, there, the new discoveries aren't going to be made. So, so it's a it's a trade off. The other thing that happens is if we reduce prices too much in our country, even if the drugs exist, they aren't imported because it's not worth the manufacturer's while. And you have some countries, uh, like New Zealand, for instance, which has a, a woefully inadequate rate of accessibility to drugs, so that people are flying to Australia to get drugs. Do we want Canadians to have to go to the United States to find the treatments they need? I don't, I don't think we're a country that needs to, uh, to do that to its citizens. And we do not seem to have a real problem with drug affordability in this country, according to several recent studies. All right. Uh, just uh, one other then. Looking at this at a whole, uh, is this a good agreement, do you think, uh, as far as replacing NAFTA and what we have now? I could cheekily say, well, it's the only agreement, so I think we better uh, sign up to it. But, uh, yeah, I actually think, look, everybody, everybody has, a, has a gripe about this agreement, which I think just goes to show how well negotiated it was, how tough the compromises were that had to be made. And we've come up with some um, pretty good uh, advances over the previous NAFTA. Intellectual property is one of them, but so is access for automobiles. So is a little more competition and dairy and so on. So, yeah, it's a good agreement. We should sign it and implement it right away. All right. Uh, Richard Owens, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But thank you again so much for coming on the program today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Richard Owens is a Monk Senior Fellow with the McDonald-Laurier Institute. 
Well, in just a couple of hours from now, people will be gathering at Concord Pacific Place for one of the MS walks taking place. It happens every year. And we've talked about this on this program before. Multiple sclerosis can strike anyone at any moment. And Canadians have the highest rate of MS in the entire world, although it's not known why Canadians are struck with this disease more than anybody else. But joining us to talk a little bit more about what's going to be happening today and uh, what's happening as far as research is uh, Tanya Veronius with the MS Society, BC and Yukon, Alberta and Northwest Territories Division. Uh, Tanya, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. It's great to be back to chat with you. Uh, How are things going as far as uh, the walk, uh, people registered and fundraising this year? Oh, we're really excited. This is such a fun day for us. So, and, and of course, the sun is shining, so we got rid of all that rain yesterday, thank goodness. But this morning, we've got um, walks taking place in 17 communities across BC, which is really exciting. So thousands of participants and volunteers raising thousands of dollars and, and just really coming together as a community. So we're, uh, we're super excited to get out there today and, and welcome everybody to, to the event. Uh, if somebody hasn't registered or they still want to take part, are they still able to do that? Absolutely, right on site. I mean, you can register online beforehand if you'd like. There's still time, but I know you could just show up and sign up on site and and uh, and be a, be a part of it. All right, um, and talk a bit if you can about research. This is the event that happens every year, but the research is ongoing. Uh, have there been any any breakthroughs or breakthroughs or improvements or or things as far as the medical research into finding a cause and finding a cure? You know, when we think about about the the, the research over the last several years, um, you know, even from the time that the MS Society started in 1948, we've contributed 175 million dollars towards research. And while it seems it can it can really feel and seem like research can take a great deal amount of time, when we think back 15, 16 years ago, there was only a handful of treatments available for people with MS, and very little was known about anything related to diet or exercise or things like that. Today, there are 14 different treatments available, so there's lots of choices uh, for people with MS, and we know so much more and and have such better information about um, certain types of exercise and diets and and, and, and overall wellness that's so critical. So um, particularly on that treatment side, no other disease um, trajectory has been that significant in really what is a short amount of time. As much as for those living with the disease, it certainly feels like a long time because we do, we want answers quickly and we want, we want more options, and, and particularly for those with progressive MS, where we've only just recently received the first uh, treatment come available. Uh, but we are making significant progress and, and learning so much more every single day. And, and with progressive MS, uh, with it affecting a, a smaller amount or a smaller uh, percentage of people with the disease, so what is the treatment now that's become available for that? So there's, there's one recently approved Health Canada treatment called Ocrevus. So that's just kind of going through all the different processes and in, in, in how it becomes available. But it's the first treatment to show some, some real promise for people living with progressive MS. So it's exciting uh, because, as I said, you know, with, with, with that comes more learning. And, and I think as we see, uh, particularly with, with different treatments, you know, one kind of starts the snowball effect. And we're really hoping that we'll see the same, same type of thing with, with, um, with options for progressive MS as well. And with the relapsing remitting, which is, the most common form of this uh, is it, and you mentioned that the other different treatments. Are we seeing uh, an improvement in that, or how people are, are are able to live with that? 
Absolutely, right? I, I mean, the, the, the treatments vary um, in, in different types of forms, from pill form to there, there was a point in time where basically daily injections were the only type of, of, um, of treatment available, and now there are treatments out there that are just two times of, a, of an infusion and, and done for years. So there's, it, it's really improving the way, that, um, the way that people can receive treatment. Uh, are we getting any closer as well to figuring out why it is that Canada has such high rates of MS? You know, there's lots of studies about that. Um, certainly, we know that it, uh, when we look at risk factors, vitamin D is, is a huge component. We came out with some, with some recommendations around um, uh, daily doses for, for vitamin D in terms of a, a prevention. Um, when we think about, we, we learn about things about distance from the equator, climate, all of those things. So uh, do we have a definitive answer? No, but we know uh, we're, we're learning a lot more. and There's certainly more information becoming available that, that makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, indeed. Um, and what about uh, other countries? I mean, is it, I, is it that Canada kind of takes the takes the lead on this because there are so many people compared to other countries? So Canada's doing more as far as research and and that. I mean, it is it is a disease that other people get as well. But are, are we seeing other countries do the research and, and trying to find a cure for this as well? We are. We're part of a number of international federations of, of, of researchers from across the world that are coming together to look at things. There's the Progressive MS Alliance. There's the International Federation for MS. There's, there's, there's so much great work taking, taking place across the globe. And we're really starting to look at this as, as part of a global effort. I do, I mean, we're very fortunate and I do believe that we have such an incredible team of, of researchers right here in Canada and, and call me biased, but certainly right here in BC. I'm just uh, delighted with the, with the work that's that's taking place um, out of UBC. Um, but no, we're certainly pleased to be a part of, of, of the global movement and, and really seeing these countries come together in the fight against MS. And you mentioned UBC, and, and I would imagine, I mean, the fundraising and the research dollars, uh, I would imagine, goes to clinical trials and goes to the work that, that's being done there. It certainly does. I mean, clinical trials is a part of it. There's also so much work. There's a fantastic study out of UBC that was just uh, published by Dr. Helen Tremblett not too long ago that even studies things around the economic impact and and, um, how somebody's economic status can affect their disease trajectory and and how that progresses with them. So there's there's all kinds of work, you know, beyond treatments and and beyond kind of some of those obvious things like clinical trials that's taking place right in our backyard, which is really exciting. because I think, and that's not uh, unique to MS, I think anybody that's uh, found themselves uh, in that scenario, you really do have to be your own advocate, don't you, as far as searching out to what treatments are available and searching out what you could possibly do, especially when we're dealing with the disease, when, when still, granted, we're doing a lot of research and trying to learn about it, but there's still so much about it that is unknown. Absolutely. And, and certainly, I mean, there's so much information out there, right? So it's also about kind of vetting and finding the, the right types of information. You know, Dr. Google can be a, <laughs> a real scary thing at times. But yes, most definitely. I mean, there's, it, it's important to do that. MS is typically diagnosed between the ages of 20 and 49, those years when we were in the prime of our lives, trying to start families and careers. And yet we find that people with MS, there's a 60% unemployment rate. So um, there, there's, we really do need to help people find the best best ways to manage their disease with treatments, with diets, with exercise, with wellness, with all those those types of things. And and we're really happy to be a a source of information uh, for for that. All right. And again, uh, how many, so 17 communities in BC participating today? 
Yes, and we'll be down at uh, Concord Place Pacific um, with probably about 600 people and and having a great time down there. All right, and how long is the, the walk that's taking place today? Uh, there's two different options. There's one that is a 1.5 and a 3 kilometer. So, so nice and easy. <laughs> you can do it as many times as you like, but it's, it's certainly here to, to, to be uh, easy for everyone. All right. And uh, a beautiful day, as you mentioned. Great weather uh, cooperating uh, with it t- today. Uh, Tanya, thank you so much. Great to chat with you again. And uh, good luck. Hope there's a huge turnout today. Thanks so much. Thanks for your support, Jill. All right. That is Tanya Vrionis and uh, with the MS Society of BC, Yukon, Alberta, and the Northwest Territories. Again, Concord Pacific Place check-in starts around 9 a.m. this morning, and people will start walking those two routes, the 1.5K and the 3K, uh, starting at 10.30 today. Well, when I first saw this story, I thought I must be reading it wrong or it must be a mistake. It comes out of Richmond, Virginia, where a healthy dog, a female Shih Tzu mix, was euthanized and cremated for burial with the dog's deceased owner because in the owner's will, that was his wish. And we are told, or the story reports, uh, that the executor of the will, the veterinarian, tried to talk the executor of the will out of it, uh, saying that there would be no problem rehoming the dog, finding a good dog for that home. Uh, But uh, there was no uh, talking the person out of it. And he, I believe it was a he or she, followed the rules of the will. Uh, So we're going to talk a bit more about uh, this. Rebecca Bretter is uh, a barrister with Bretter Law Corporation and often deals with cases involving animals. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What was your first reaction when you heard about this story? I think it's terrible. And I think uh, most people's reaction to the story was like, oh my gosh, how can this even be possible? But unfortunately, the starting point is that, as we all know, animals are property. But the good thing is that, at least in Canada, and I have to say in many parts of the world too, Uh, courts are starting to recognize that although animals are property, they're a different kind of property that have to be treated differently than like a chair. So when it comes to to this story, um, you know, I I was really considering what we do here in BC. And really, if someone wanted the same thing to happen here, it could. Like that's a starting point. There's our, our funeral and our cremation laws Um, don't say anything about whether you're allowed or not allowed to do that. They speak to only human remains. Uh, I I double-checked before before speaking with you just to make sure there haven't been any recent prohibitions in regards to pets, and and there aren't. I mean, there's nothing prohibiting uh, someone wanting to be buried with, with their animal. Now, in theory, you know, if the dog or the or cat or, or other animal died before the person, then I'm totally fine with that, right? Right. But, I mean, if you're having a, a wish in your will that your animal is to be buried with you, I think that what you really need to do is ensure that the drafting of the will is very clear and that it says that your deceased animal or the remains of your deceased animal that were the ashes of your of your animal um, are to be buried with you. Otherwise, it could be easily interpreted as, oh, well, this person wants their animal buried with them, so I guess we have to go kill him and bury the animal. 
Right. Or, or make it clear that when if you pass away first, then then have a rehoming plan or have a plan for the animal. And then even I mean, it even seems like a bit of a stretch there. But if you were so intent on that, on being buried with your animal, that that the animal be buried beside you at a later date or when the animal passes away somehow. You know, the good news is that most of the cases that I see are, are people who want a provision in their will that their animal is cared for after they die. Because in in Canada, unlike uh, the United States, in Canada, we don't have any laws that allow uh, gifts to be made directly to animals. So the way to go around that is to have a provision to get a person to take care of your animal, and then you leave a whole bunch of money to that person to take care of the animal. So Mm -hmm. those are the types of cases I usually see. I'm luckily, I mean, I'm yet to see anything where something like this happens. But, you know, and and I think the question is that some people would be wondering about is, well, what would happen if something like this were to happen here and, and, and it seems like the person wants their animal killed, their healthy animal to be killed? What can that be? What can something be done about that here in BC? Right. And the short answer is yes. I mean, I think, quite frankly, it would be an uphill battle. But the short answer is yes, because usually, um, I mean, there are two main ways. One way is to see if if the person who has the animal, and it would probably be a shelter, like when the person dies, it would be a shelter who gets the animal, unless there's a a family friend or a family member who would be taking care of the animal until something is done with the animal. Um, Then whoever has the animal would have to apply to court to be the only person responsible for the control of that person's remains. And if no one else really cares, then that may be a solution to explain to the court, well, listen, there's an adoptable family here. This this pet is perfectly fine. We don't need to kill the animal. Like, that's one solution. The other solution is that um, a a person can apply to vary a will. But in BC, um, really, the only people who could do that are either the the spouse or the children of the deceased. And so hopefully the spouse or the children would care enough about this animal to do that. Um, or the executor could apply to have the will interpreted, you know. But if if neither of those work, then there is the possibility. I, I mean, it's never been done, but I'm not going to foreclose on the on the possibility. Is that if there is an animal shelter, like in this case in Virginia, the really thought that this animal should not be killed, then they could try and apply and sue the estate of the deceased person on, I mean, I would say on, on, on equitable principles. Like it's basically telling the court, listen, it's not fair. They're, they're, there's no reason why this animal should be killed. And of course, there's a lot more to it. But right. but I think the short answer is that I think it would be possible. Maybe an uphill battle in BC, but I think it would be possible and definitely worth a try if something like this were to happen. Uh, and what about the role of, because I would imagine if this was to happen, you would take the animal to a veterinarian to have it euthanized. Uh, what if the veterinarian refused? Uh, refused to, uh, to euthanize the animal? Yeah. Yeah, as they should. You know, I have to say, I just... I couldn't believe that they were able to find a veterinarian who euthanized a perfectly healthy, adoptable pet. But unfortunately, you know, animals are property. And if the vet is told by the executor and shown the will, then, then I mean, I, I don't think they did anything legally wrong per se. But um, if you can't find a veterinarian who would do that, then 
you you can't <laughs> you can't do anything about it. But I think chances are you would find a veterinarian ultimately who would who would kill a perfectly healthy animal. Even though, again, I certainly don't think that they should. All right, so does it need to be like you said? It would be this could be something that would end up in the courts and would involve people fighting it. And and I suppose that could lead to another issue too, as if somebody fun- suddenly finds themselves in that scenario. It's there's a cost to that, and and there's a time and a, and a financial cost to that. Uh, do, do you think is it something that the law needs to be clarified or needs to be changed? Well, I think I think in time we're already seeing changes in the common law. Animals are are starting to be treated as something more than property, which is good. Uh, and when it comes to something like this, of course, I would totally advocate and support a change in the law that something that would specifically disallow the killing of a healthy animal just for the purposes of being buried with uh, with his or her owner. And that's something that could be done by either uh, amendments to the cremation and funeral law that we have here in B.C. or um, or just like an added regulation. And, of course, I talk like, as though it's, oh, yeah, it's so easy to do. It's not. <laughs> it, takes, <laughs> it takes a lot of lobbying and it takes a lot of political appetite for that to be done. But um, but I think ultimately if, that if 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 we see an increasing number of cases like this, then for sure I think I think you'd start seeing more people advocating and lobbying the government for a change in the law. But in the interim, um, the good news is that, like I said, I, I think something could be done. I think you could be challenged in court. Is it easy? No, but it doesn't mean it can't be done. That is that is a good thing. I, I mean, I guess what made this even more uh, strange was that this is a case out of Virginia, and there's actually a law in Virginia that forbids burying pets with humans, yet it still happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you see, my understanding was that actually that the law allowed the burial of, of human remains with, um, with pet remains, but what was unclear was whether um, was whether the law allowed specifically for to be killed for the purposes of being buried uh, with with their person, mm. and so I don't think the the law specifically allowed that, but I think it was interpreted in that way, oh. which you know, and and the reality is is that if no one is there to stand up for the animal and to fight for the animal in court. You know, the executor could easily say, okay, well, even if I am in the wrong, really, like, what are the damages? What's anyone going to do about it? Chances are nothing, really. And once the once the deed, so to speak, is done, you know, the point is moot. So if someone wanted to try and, and fight it in court at that point, it would be too late because the, the poor animal is already dead. All right. We'll have to leave it there. But uh, thank you so much. And I think, yes, the, the takeaway, the good news is there, there is an avenue. Uh, if this was to happen here, there would be an avenue to, to go against it. So that is, that is some good news. Uh, Rebecca yes. Bretter, thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk about this. I really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. Uh, Rebecca Bretter is a barrister uh, with Bretter Law Corporation. Not the happiest of topics, but when we saw that story, uh, we just felt that something, we needed to talk about it. So that is uh, something that is is good news, that if this was to happen in BC, uh, it wouldn't just be a sign on the line and it's done. There are ways, uh, there would be ways to not go ahead with those wishes. Well, the title of this opinion piece in the Tai is uh, Put Fishing Back in BC Fishermen's Hands. And the author, Evelyn Pinkerton, joins me on the line now. Evelyn is a professor of resource and environmental management at SFU. Thank you so much for being with us. 
It's my pleasure, Jill. Uh, you've written about uh, what's happening on the West Coast as far as quotas, uh, fishing licenses. What are your main concerns with what you see? Oh, there are several, Jill. Uh, the main one is, well, it's hard to say which is the main one. The main one, perhaps, is that our fishermen who used to be a major economic um, support of coastal communities, really the, the heartbeat of coastal communities, are um, are no longer there or are, are there in so much fewer numbers. Uh, and that's because they can't afford to fish anymore and young people can't get into the fishery anymore. And I guess the second concern of equal importance is that our fisheries are more and more now owned by uh, offshore interests. Um, so we're losing all kinds of jobs. It's shocking to me that two years ago, the last cannery in BC was closed. I mean, how can you imagine BC without a cannery? Uh, I mean, the last commercial cannery, I think there are a few very small canneries that sort of can for, um, you know, personal licenses. Um, but this, this last cannery, the, the, the fish, uh, is landed in this cannery because, or what used to be a cannery in Prince Rupert, um, because the owner, uh, Jimmy Patterson, uh, controls about 80% of the um, herring and salmon licenses. Um, And then he just sends it to uh, Thailand, Vietnam, um, I can't remember the third country, and even Alaska to be canned because labor is cheaper there. Um, And so... We're losing not only fishing, but job. We're losing jobs in processing, and we're losing uh, all those support industries that used to be all over our coastal communities, like boat building and um, gear supply and repa- boat repair, and so many jobs were <clears throat> came out of the fishing industry. You write about uh, the the transferable quotas, the individual transferable quotas, or the ITQs, mm-hmm. and the fact mm-hmm. that the policy on the West Coast is very different than what we see on the East Coast. In that, there uh, anybody can purchase them, uh, you can trade them, uh, you can sell them, or you can purchase as many as you'd like, and they are expensive. Uh, so, would you like to see that policy changed in BC? Oh, very, very much, and. Uh, it's complicated because some fishermen have been forced to to buy individual quotas at at great at huge expense, and so they shouldn't be just um, you know eliminated. <laughs> they should be allowed to transition out. And some of the fishermen who've been interviewed have suggested like maybe a seven year period of transition where people could, you know, fishermen especially could divest themselves gradually. And 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 a lot of businesses have labeled, uh, have identified a seven-year period as a reasonable period in which to do that. Uh, so, you know, I'm very concerned about the fishermen who've been forced into this system being hurt again. So, you know, they should be uh, let down slowly. And, you know, also fair to the big businesses that have invested. Um, they too, sh- you know, sh- should have a transition period. But, but you know, they really shouldn't be. They really shouldn't be controlling our fishery and doing whatever they want with it. And would you see? Do you think that would be enough, though, to bring back the jobs that we've lost, or to bring back uh, much of the the both the fishing jobs as well as the 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 uh, offshoot jobs uh, in the industry? 
enough enough what if if oh, that, you mean that that change yeah that kind of change it would it no nobody knows for sure but it would help a lot uh i mean especially young people i mean one of the the, the people that really moved the parliamentary committee that has been working on this were the young fishermen's association uh in bc uh they you know, they're, you know, when young people speak up, uh, people can hear them, and they're the people who are most upset because it's their future. Uh, so um, it would make a huge difference to them. Uh, where is it at right now? And, and you've touched on this, excuse me, in the in the piece also. Bill C-68, uh, which has amendments to the Fisheries Act, uh, so it's it's at the Senate right now. Do you see, w- if the Senate passes this, will that make changes, or, or what will that do, do you think, to the industry? Um, that, that will help a lot, and it will mandate, um, you know, it, it, it makes owner-operator uh, absolutely legally required on the East Coast. This is for, on the East Coast, it's for boats that are under 65 feet in length, so it isn't the offshore trawlers on the East Coast, not that, I mean, you know, the ones that did in the cod fishery there. <laughs> um, but it, it um, the, the, the main thing is that it, it enshrines um, the need to consider uh, social and cultural factors as well as economic ones. On, on this coast, we've been pretty focused on just economic uh, factors and the Department of Fisheries on this coast hasn't been mandated to consider social factors as well. And so that is, for example, the, um, you know, the enormous inequity in um, charging fishermen 80% of the value of the catch just to deliver halibut, for example, but to lease halibut quota, because only, um, you know, only about 15% of the um, halibut quota is now, um, under owner operator um, operation, and so, you know, it used to be ninety percent of the when when halibut quota started in 1991. It used to be you know ninety percent of halibut boats were owner operated, and now it's only fifteen percent. So that means the rest of that quota is being, um, you know, people are paying up to eighty percent of the value of the catch just to lease the quota, which is. You know, if you look at it not just economically but socially, it's you know that's not a very fair distribution of benefits from our fishery. Um, it's really out of hand. And there are uh, Jill, there there's a working paper uh, that's accessible to anyone on the website of the UBC Institute of Oceans and Fisheries, um, which is you can just Google UBC Institute of Oceans and Fisheries, or the website is oceans.ubc.ca and then you go to publications and then you go to working papers and there's a working paper there called the rise of the investor class which has all these numbers spelled out Um, some um, peer-reviewed journals allow uh, the posting of a working paper of an early draft um, on, on, on a website like this so that it's available to the public and so that one is available to the public and has a lot of uh, the hard data on this for anybody who wants to look at the hard data on what's happened. All right. Well, people uh, can definitely check that out. Uh, we only have about a minute left. Uh, the, the fisheries minister, the federal fisheries, fisheries minister now from B.C., still relatively uh, new in that position. Uh, do you think that there will be changes coming or that he's he knows about this or is looking at this, uh, some of the issues that you've raised? 
Well, he has to know about it because the the prime minister has charged him with doing something about it, <clears throat> you know, with doing something about bringing in the social and creating prosperous coastal communities. So the prime minister has given him some very clear directives there. Um, he is under pressure uh, from, um, you know, any bureaucracy that has been operating in a certain way for a long time doesn't easily change. And so he's he's definitely under pressure from DFO Pacific Region not to make the kind of changes that are needed uh, to bring back some kind of prosperity to our coast. So uh, that's going to be the big challenge is going to be – that's why he needs to convene an independent commission. And he needs to include – uh, fishermen representatives and coastal community representatives like coastal community mayors and planners and people like that uh, in this commission so that it can be really independent and not um, just sort of ruled by the status quo, which is so easy for, you know, bureaucracies. I mean, there are lots of great people in DFO. I'm not trying to diss them, but just that bureaucracies have a certain <laughs> slowness to change, as you probably well know. Very, very true. Uh and, and so that's get, that's going to be hard for the minister is to get uh, DFO. So it's it's you know it's going to be pressure from Ottawa to to make these changes, but it's going to be resistance locally. All right. So you um, know we need lots of citizens to step up and tell the minister that they really care about this and they really want him to move. We need lots of people to support him in making changes. All right, Evelyn, we'll have to leave it there, but thank you so much. That is Evelyn Pinkerton, uh, professor of resource and environmental management at SFU.